Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with a platform to perform. I'm your host as always, Todd Davidson, and on episode 33 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I have the strength and conditioning coach for the University of York and owner of Go Performance, Rob Milner. How are you doing today, Rob? Yeah, good, mate. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. I'm very well. Uh, let's kick things off with a question I like to ask uh, all the uh, guys that I have on the podcast, and that is, why do you do what you do? Uh, yeah, good question. Um, well, I didn't actually start at SNC until later on in life. I was actually um, a police officer when I was around 20. Um, I decided I didn't really want to do that for the rest of my life. It wasn't quite what I had in mind, what I expected. Um, so I decided to go back to uni and, and do something that I that I, I knew I was going to love and get a lot of uh, satisfaction from. Uh, and this led me to kind of working in this S&C role uh, and more so towards working with kids these days. Um, and yeah, I just really enjoy it. I just love seeing the process unfold. It's, um, it's brilliant just watching people getting better, um, seeing their behaviour change, seeing their confidence improve. Uh, I just love the energy you get from kids as well. It's really infectious. And in terms of your philosophy, like you say, most of your work's with youth athletes, but I know you obviously also do a bit of work with university athletes. You also work with general population. So if you have a philosophy when it comes to strength and conditioning, how does that or does it change at all when you're working with these different populations? And if you feel like you have a philosophy, how would you describe it? Yeah, um, I don't think it changes between populations that I work with, to be honest. I think the principles stay the same. Um, and I had this conversation with one of the one of my clients, actually, who's in the business world, and he put me on the spot and kind of said, you know, if you had to pin it down to three key areas, what would it be? What would your philosophy be? Um, so, yeah, it made me think, and we came up with trust, progression, and respect as my three big areas. So trust, um what I mean by that is uh, looking to develop relationships with the kids, with the athletes, with the coaches. Um, and to kind of phrase, it's that uh, phrase, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And it's it's been so true uh, in my coaching career. Everything you deliver becomes so much more powerful. Um, and you can have those tough conversations. They value your input if you've got that awesome relationship with them. Progression, I'm a massive believer in earning the right to progress. Uh, again, stole that from Kelvin Giles. Um, but I find it really useful and important to have those systems in place so everyone's got a clear clear direction of how to improve. Um, if we need to make any regressions or progressions, we can do that. Uh, and then respect, finally, just little things. Um, I've heard other people on your podcast mention this, uh, but little things, little behaviours like clearing weights away, being respectful, um, to other people that you're in the gym with, as well as people you're training with, um, helping your teammates to move weights around, move plyo boxes around. Uh, we always encourage peer-to-peer coaching whenever possible um, and also get the athletes to do the demonstrations just to improve that level of, uh, what's, the, what's the word, involvement in the session, really. Yeah, I mean, like, so we mentioned offline about putting your weights back being a big one. Um, even for yeah. me, I think it's taking pride in the little things or even from a coachability aspect, 
I think it's very easy to think, is that athlete coachable in the sense of, will they listen to, I don't know, the specific points you're making in a demonstration? But I also think when it comes to putting equipment away, the amount of times that I've banged my head against a brick wall and said, for example, I want the bibs put back and I want them <laughs> folded. I want the mini hurdles put back with all the legs facing the right way. And then the kid will be like, yep, yeah, did it. And then you look at the mini hurdles and you're like, no, you didn't. Because now when I grab those, they're all going to fall out. And so it's that level of attention to detail. It's not you being fussy. It's actually, for example, if you go to a job interview and you've got one black sock and one white sock, like, yeah, yeah. you yeah, you turned up with your socks on, but it doesn't look right. Yeah, exactly that. And we've found just little things like that. Could Kids come in and they look at you as if to say, oh, am I supposed to put these weights away? Am I supposed to move these bars and things like that? And then they soon realise, you know, when everyone else is doing it, all the other kids are doing it, they soon start doing it themselves. And you see this behaviour change, this positive improvement where they're helping each other out. It makes makes such a difference. Yeah, like one of my pet hates as a teacher is, and it's something I've stopped doing now, where you say something like, right, everyone put the stuff away which is such a vague instruction. You think it's the equivalent of, you know, I don't know, you see it on uh, TV shows all the time where, I don't know, someone's been involved in an accident and somebody screams, somebody call an ambulance. And obviously everyone expects somebody else to do it. Um, Whereas what I've been doing now is I'll say, Rob, you're in charge of the yellow cones. Susan, you're in charge of the mini hurdles. Make sure the legs are the right way. And at least that way you're like, right, everyone has a job to do. And if I didn't call your name, you'd best be helping those people. I think it yeah. tells me a lot more about you as a person if you're like, oh, well, everyone else has been given a job, I'm going to get away early versus, right, I'm going to take responsibility for helping out my team and, you know, not just shirking away because I've not been asked to do something. Yeah, that's a good idea. I might steal that one. It does work well. It does work well. <laughs> the only problem is when you have too many, too much equipment and then you're like, hmm, did I ask you or was that somebody else? <laughs> Um, we're going to talk now about um, developing as a coach and obviously the different avenues you can go down because there's almost a million and one CPD opportunities for coaches. And yeah. I know that you recently did uh, Altus's, uh, was it the foundation course or? Uh, no, I haven't done the Altus uh, oh, course, no. Uh, no, no, it's not me. Uh, must Different just, coach. Must have just seen you posting about it. Well, uh... <laughs> no, I went on the, um, I've been on a few workshops with, Speedworks guys ah. just learning about um acceleration sorry top end speed mechanics and things like that i think that's what you might have seen yes yes it was so how did you um how did you decide that that was where you were going to invest your time and money well i think um because of the whole covid situation at the moment especially over summer um a lot of the sessions i was doing was out outdoors um, I've always included speed work in my sessions, but we've had kind of limited opportunities, shall we say, to actually develop the speed side of things and spend a significant amount of time. Because most of the athletes that I'll see, I might see them once once a week. Um, and if I'm lucky, twice a week. Um, and most of those times are in the gym setting. Um, we have to share space at university. We have to share space with the university teams as well so um having a space a big space to actually do the speed work is is not always available um but over over lockdown we've done a lot more 
speed work with individual athletes. So it's something that I wanted to kind of fine tune and just, I think, I think you find this as a coach, the more you learn, the more little questions you come up with as you go. So you might dig into a bit more depth. You'll start learning about top end speed. And I was, I was trying to find out from that presentation, which was incredibly in depth, you know, way above my head, really. Um, I've made plenty of notes on it so I can go back to it. But um, what I found really useful was it kind of helped me answer certain little questions that I had what the ankle should be doing, for example, uh, upon contact and how that relates to exercises you might use in the gym. So, yeah, I found I found uh, I will continue to find it useful because I can go back to it and use that as a resource. So what were the, out of interest, what were the main changes that you made to a programme as a result? Or even what were some of the things that were reconfirmed having um, done the stuff with Speedworks? Yeah, I mean, uh, they were emphasising the importance of the ankle complex, um, getting it nice and strong around there. So we've been doing a lot more work with, um, similar to what Alex Natera does, where he does isometrics. Uh, things where you're holding your foot in a certain position that's specific to the running mechanics um, under load. We found that really useful and that helps to solidify that that foot position upon upon contact. So you get a nice stiff stiff contact and there's not much leakage of force, should we say? Yeah, I've had uh, a lot of SNC coaches use an analogy of a car with flat tires to say that we don't spend enough time. Yeah working on the ankle complex yeah yeah that's a really good analogy actually um and it's something you know you're always learning aren't you? there's always a new area a new avenue that you go down uh you just got to be careful to not go down too many rabbit holes otherwise you just get blinded by uh too much information oh absolutely i mean i think information overload is one of the key problems especially for example if you've got more time on your hands so you're like right let me find out everything about whatever topic i mean quite I like from a guy called Derek Sivers. He said, if lack of information was the problem, we'd all be millionaires with six hack outs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was just so much information out there. And there's so many different views. You could go down a rabbit hole just on, just on the foot and how the foot moves during, um, during running. It's, it's crazy. You just got to be careful not to overly focus on one particular area. That's what I found useful. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And a couple of things I try and remind myself of, is uh so dan john uh, talks about uh complementary exercises and uh well, sorry the difference in complementary and complementary so complementary would be you have nice eyes whereas complementary would be well if we've done this part of the program here we don't then need to repeat it here and i'm yeah. also thinking to myself if we've got the basics down can we tweak those slightly so talking about the foot and ankle complex if we're already doing for example plyometrics or landings then could we do what I call credit card landings or stiffness landings where you land with the heel slightly off the ground and yeah. develop that stiffness rather than just try and reduce the force? Um, because it's so easy to think, oh, let's chuck this new exercise in. And they think, well, if the session has to be an hour, then something's going to come out. Or equally, if you're not limited by time, there's going to be a recovery cost to everything you put in. So it better be better than what you're already doing. Otherwise, you're soon going to lead to overkill. 
yeah, there's got to be, like you say, there's got to be some kind of progression in there in each session, or um, there must be some kind of logic to why you're putting that, why you're putting that in there. But yeah, those are really good ones where you try to land a bit stiffer. That's a good, good progression. Again, I think Alex Natera released some information on the um, on a workshop over lockdown, saying the different um, levels of stress that go through your legs when you're landing in say a soft soft landing versus a, a stiff landing it's quite interesting can't quite remember the numbers off by heart but they were pretty pretty different in terms of how much body weight you're putting through through each leg excellent i may well have to steal that off you offline because i'd be very intrigued even even messing around with variations myself and it's something i do if for example if I'm going to sneak them into a warm-up. Uh, but the other day, as I said to you, when I do my warm-ups with kids, I tend to go level one, two, or three because I work with mixed yep. ability groups. And <clears throat> we were just doing a warm-up for rounders, which I know for most people is like blows their mind. Surely you just play the game. But uh, I said, right, we're going to jump up and pretend we're catching a high ball. I was like, level one, you're going to jump and land and catch with two feet. Level, uh, level three was jump off two feet, land on one. And obviously yeah. all the kids pick level three because why wouldn't you? And uh, yeah. most of them nearly fell over. But yeah. that added eccentric load of jumping as high as you can with two feet, which is obviously going to outperform how high you can jump on one foot. And yeah. you don't realise, even in practising myself, I was like, oh, I'm going to have to self-regulate how high I jump with two legs because otherwise I'm going to make an idiot of myself in this demonstration. But those little things, I, I even like it from a perspective of, getting kids to understand how to use their body without even before we even worry about tendons and stuff like that just right if I want to land stiff I need to do this with my body if I want to land spongy I need to do this with my body um yeah what you're saying there about making sure you don't double up with areas I think it's so easy you could just as easily use that with younger kids and be like right this is just a chance for them to explore movement and with the older kids or uni athletes you're like right you can, if you need to, you can talk to them about developing stiffness at the ankle. This is helping your sprinting technique um, or your sprinting physical capabilities. So there's lots of room to manoeuvre if you know what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. I think um, the warm-up's a good time to practice those kind of things. If you want to kind of dabble in, let's try and land a little bit stiffer or let's try and land as quietly as possible. That's a kind of a good time to, to try that and just kind of dip in and see how they deal with that um little little progression yeah i mean one that i've stolen off you that i quite like um if i can remember it rightly something like uh a, a couple of pogos and then into a split squat or something yes yeah. to that call. that's it yeah and you're like well actually i think a lot of things that when pe teachers look at strength and conditioning well there's a couple of things that i think the issues that i think they face and one of them is obviously a need to keep it fun but Two is what I call progression through play. So the kids are still enjoying it. And yeah. It doesn't look as, I mean, I don't know whether regiment is the right word. It doesn't look as quote unquote structured as yeah. say, an academy strength and conditioning, but there is a thought process behind it. So for example, in your example, where they're po- practicing pogos and then into a split squat, for me, that's just seeing, have they got the timing? Have they got the rhythm? Can they reorientate their body? Um, Whereas in an academy setup, you could just say, right, we're practicing a little bit of stiffness and then we're practicing a deceleration position. Like there's so many different ways to sell it. You don't necessarily need to think, oh, we did that in week one. So we need to do something totally different in week two. It can just be subtle changes. And I think the beauty comes when there's structures there, but 
it doesn't feel like it's there for want of a better phrase yeah yeah subtle progressions that they're not aware of yeah it's really important so like for example with that one that you you said there so earlier on in the in the um training phase we were landing we were doing pogos and then pogos to a double leg landing and then pogos to a split stance landing and then finally pogos to a single leg landing which was obviously a lot more challenging so you kind of do double leg pogos to a single leg landing so you can see that there's a little bit of progression in there a little bit of variation and it's just just super simple really yeah i mean i quite like a phrase that dan john uh, uses in a lot of his work and he just calls it same but different so it's like similar yeah. but it's not exactly the same so it's similar enough where they're like oh this isn't a million miles away from what i've done and i think it's also especially in a p context it's i mean stefan jones has blogged on this before where he talks yeah. about we ignore the concept of skill acquisition when it comes to PE in the sense of, oh, it's week one, so you're going to do this. And I don't know, let's take volleyball, for example. Week one, mm. we're going to learn the dig. Week two, we're going to learn the spike. Week three, we're going to learn the sell, whatever it would be. I think, imagine if top level sport like that, right? Manchester United, you've finished passing this week. So now we're going to <laughs> shooting. It's like, I only took a week. I'm an amazing coach. <laughs> yeah, just it's not realistic, is it? <laughs> no. No, um, and if we sort of go back to the uh, original question, in terms of timing-wise, when you decide which aspects of your development as a coach and indeed as a business owner you're going to prioritise, do you have any sort of questions that you ask yourself before? In Like you mentioned with Speedworks, it was the fact that an opportunity has arisen in the sense of you're going to be doing more speed work over lockdown, your athletes don't normally get the chance to do this when they see you in their sessions. Is there any other questions or processes you go through to decide where you invest your time and money and how has that process developed from say, I don't know, when you were in uni to where you, when you are now? Yeah. I mean, I wish I could tell you that I had a pretty structured plan in place um, to my development. I know a lot of coaches do have that process in place, but um, for me, Early on in my career, my focus was to be as good a coach as possible, um, just make as many mistakes as possible, uh, just by trying trying things, failing, learning from them, trying another thing, failing, learning from it. Um, I think that's a process you've got to go through. You've got to go through that. Uh, you've got to put yourself in those uncomfortable situations where you're working with teams of athletes um, you're dealing with a, a group of, let's say, rugby players or whatever sport it might be that you're working with, and you, you're able to communicate to them properly. You're able to deliver a, a competent session, um, and you're able to do that week in, week out, and, and get good results as well. Um, that was my main focus early on in my career. Uh, obviously, that never stops. You're always trying to be a better coach, uh, but it's obviously a steep, steep learning curve to begin with. Um, and, and it just, like I say, it's never, never stops in that regard. When I realized that I wanted to do more work through my own business and so not necessarily work for a team uh, or a club, um, that's when I really started to focus on, right, I need to upskill in these areas because I literally have no idea how I should be marketing myself, how I should be selling my services. Um, you see all these PTs around with loads of clients and you just think what are they what are they doing that I'm not doing like early on in your career you're thinking why why am I not getting that many 
one to one clients uh, or team clients, whatever you want to, whatever you want to get. Um, and I think that's that becomes a learning process then, and that's when, for me, I I decide to you know join, um, like a mentorship that had S and C side of things, but also the business and marketing side of things as well. And I found that really useful, but that was just kind of the starting point, really, uh, up to where I am now, where I'm still I'm still putting a big emphasis on learning how to sell products, how to develop products, how to market them correctly. Uh, and it's an ongoing process. Again, it's another rabbit hole. You've got to be careful not to go too deep down. So in terms of when it comes to strength and conditioning, we might talk about the basics of say programming as I don't know, managing volume, intensity, rest periods, etc. Or we might talk about types of fundamental movements. What would you say are the business equivalent of say, I don't know, squat, hinge, push, pull? Yeah. Um, again, I think marketing is a really important aspect. Um, social media is massive now having a, having a positive uh, image on social media, I think is really important just to showcase what you're doing. Um, I actually employed someone to, to help me with that if, uh, like about a year ago or two years ago. Uh, and they did a really great job and I've learned quite a lot from them. Um, so now I'm doing that by myself. Uh, I know what to do, you know, do things like daily posts. Um, and you might think sometimes people aren't watching, but you, then you'll get a message saying, oh, really like your posts on X, Y, and Z, or you'll get a message saying, oh, I just wanted to ask about whether or not you do team sessions and things like that. So you, it might seem like you're not contributing to your marketing presence, but you you are doing. It's, um, it's like an ongoing process. Um, selling, that's something that I'm, again, not, it doesn't come natural to me. Doesn't It's not a natural thing. I think most S&C coaches struggle with the concept of, selling programs to to clients it's very you might think it's a little bit pt-ish if that makes sense uh to be a bit salesy but um i think it's important if you're working for yourself as a business you need to treat yourself as a business and and selling is a fundamental part of any business and it's funny just here um i resonate a lot with what you've just said there in the sense of the analogy i would use is if you've got a physical shop you can see people walk past you can see people walking in the shop and if they leave you're like well i got them into the shop what was it that stopped them buying something whereas in the online world you don't see those people so it's very easy to become demotivated and yeah it's very easy it's it's ironic really because as strength conditioning coaches performance coaches you tell your athletes all the time focus on the process and the results will take care of themselves yeah we flip that with ourselves and we're like i don't know this isn't selling or this course isn't filling up despite the fact that we're telling our athletes the opposite is there any certain apart from financial metrics are there any other metrics that you look at or equally on the flip side is there any way you try and detach yourself from those until you've for example got the processes down of posting regularly or um, making sure that you're, I don't know, posting at the right times or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, obviously you can see what the engagement's like on the post that you've that you've got, so you can kind of you can kind of um, see what kind of posts are pleasing to 
to your market, if that makes sense. Um, I mean, what I used to do, I used to write a lot more blogs. I'm just trying to find the time to do those at the moment. But I used to do a lot more blog posts and you could see the the traffic um, through Google Analytics. You could see how many people have actually viewed it. Um, so that was a that was a really good way of seeing, kind of trying something out, writing about something. Is this the kind of subject material that uh, potential customers would be interested in? You'll be able to see, for example, one of the one of the most popular blog posts I did was about called something like functional hypertrophy. It's basically how to build build muscle mass, and for whatever reason, that's been the most viewed blog post that I've done in the history of my of my website. So that has obviously resonated with the with the potential audience that I've got. So that, in theory, should lead down a path thinking, right, where else would this kind of market be interested in? And then that's that's where I'd get my next material from, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It, it's also funny because I think to myself, there's obviously two ways you can go about it. There's either A, finding out what the interest is and then deciding to create a product or uh, create some resources based on that. Or B, you think, oh, I want to tell the world about X and we'll just see what happens. And for example, I know uh, a great quote, by, great quote by Henry Ford when he's like, oh, if I gave the people what they want, they'd have faster horses. And yeah. there's, it's difficult as a strength and conditioning coach to think to yourself, what will people find value in and what's still sticking to my principles? I've had people say to me, oh, you should just do hit workouts like then you'll get a lot more people paying you. And I'm like, well, does that align with my principles and how I want to, for example, give people, pardon the pun, the platform to perform? Is this the skills that I think will lead them to a higher level of performance in whatever context they define performance? Um, but it is difficult because you think, oh, well, I don't know. I'm blogging about hypertrophy when actually, I don't know, people should should be interested in X, Y, Z and trying to find that happy medium between presenting content in such a way that's educational, but also giving people what they want and also giving people what they need at the same time. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head there. That's something I didn't mention that it needs to be in line with what your, what your principles are of your business. Um, obviously anyone can post a video of some crazy, crazy workout um, and get popular likes, popular views. But that's not, you know, if that's not aligned with your business principles, then you're kind of doing damage to yourself, really. And in terms of uh, if we just sort of come slightly off topic to something we're uh, talking off uh, air about, um, obviously, it's very easy to write down a lot of exercises, write down some random reps and call it a killer session and everyone raves about it. Um, we've both got backgrounds in uh, different respective uh, combat sports. And we were saying off air about looking back on it, sessions that I've done years ago, if I then put my S&C hat on, I'd be like, oh, I might tweak this, might tweak that. What are some of the uh, common either mistakes or misconceptions that you see with the way that combat athletes are trained by coaches or groups or how groups of general populations are trained by combat coaches? Yeah, I mean... To be fair, if you if you join if you join a combat sport, then you you expect you expect a certain level of intensity in that in that um, session, um, and a lot of people are using 
this is the way I kind of view it anyway. Might be wrong, but a lot of people I think go to these sessions because they don't want to be necessarily want to be a fighter. They don't necessarily want to compete in that sport. Um, in fact, that's probably a minority who do. Most of them probably just want to use that as an avenue of of keeping fit and kind of pushing themselves a little bit. Um, so I think if they didn't deliver these high intensity sessions, then they'd be kind of disappointed. If that makes sense. Um, so that's that's uh, an argument for why it might be like very high intensity session. Um, I've seen quite a few fighters training on YouTube as you do, and you obviously see them doing some some crazy stuff. And more often than not, it looks like high volume for the sake of doing high volume work, as opposed to actually doing good quality good quality movement. Um, but yeah, I think we said you saw you've seen videos of famous boxers training and they do some crazy sport specific, uh, in quotes, um, type activities that probably have zero transfer to their actual sport, but it's probably pleasing a the coach and, and be the athlete. Um, so maybe it's those nice to do exercises saying that it seems to be getting a lot better these days. Um, I think it's boxing science. I think you know yeah. those guys. Yeah, great guys. They've, I think they've really put a stamp on, from what I've seen on their social media presence, put a stamp on um, kind of improving how athletes should really be preparing for, for competition. Uh, I think I think it's getting a lot better, to be honest. I think UFC athletes, you know, look, Duncan French is over at the um, UFC now. Obviously, he'll have brought a, a serious level of professionalism uh, to their preparation. Um, so I think they're definitely going down the right route. It's just getting that spread out throughout the whole, the whole um, kind of sport now, the whole sport of boxing or mixed martial arts or Thai boxing, whatever it is. But yeah, I think going back to your original question, common mistakes for me is doing quantity over quality. And in terms of, so I always try and think logistically in terms of when I've uh, trained, when I used to box, obviously you do loads of pushing work, not much pulling work. And then it's easy as an SNC coach to jump on that and be like, oh, you're doing so much pushing work, not enough pulling work. But then I think logistically, push-up variations don't require any equipment, whereas pulling variations do. So if you're proposing that the quote-unquote solution to that problem is to do more pulling work, you obviously haven't ever been to a boxing gym. Um, yeah. But you recommended some nice uh, substitutes for, for example, endless push-up work when we were chatting off air. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I I mean, personally, from Thai boxing point of view, there's quite a lot of pulling involved because there's the clinch clinch element. Uh, it's almost like a wrestling part of the of the game, which is... You know, it's, it's, I find that really enjoyable, but you're doing a lot of pulling your opponent around. So you do get that training effect. Um, but yeah, predominantly, like you say, most sports do have those those pushing activities. But we used to do a lot of, of partner work where you're actually using your partner as resistance, uh, doing things like um, using them. I think Brendan Chapman's done a whole... 
a thing on this actually where you're using your partner to do certain pulling movements and things like that you just need someone who's pretty strong who's able to hold a solid position so you can actually roll them up and things like that but it does work it can be done um it's just it's just uh, being a little bit creative with your coaching really and thinking right we've got this much this much pushing work in there how can we introduce some level of um pulling into every kind of session and i think the only realistic option would probably probably be if you haven't got any bars available um is to actually use your partner as a resistance yeah and then it's funny because it gets i mean i've done a whole video on youtube about uh mistakes made with circuit training in the sense of i think circuit training gets a bad rap but oftentimes it's because the circuit is designed in the sense of, oh, we do this exercise, then we do that exercise, then we do this one. And like, well, why did you pick those three specifically? And if yeah. you ask most people, they'd shrug their shoulders and be like, well, why not? Whereas <laughs> you think, again, if we go back to you, something you mentioned offline, uh, was potentially substituting pushing it movements for crawling exercises. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just because obviously a bit more shoulder stability, you're still working the same muscles. Um, but then it's interesting because for example, if you can back up, say, 20 push-ups, then there's obviously a cardio hit to that as well. Um, so like I said, I often wonder why coaches decide to pick certain movements or is it just, this is hard, let's chuck this in there? Yeah, I think, <clears throat> I mean, I've seen this in commercial gyms, you know. Um, let's think of the most horrible circuit possible, uh, you know, uh, off the top of my head, you might do something like, burpees into squat jumps into switching um split stance jumps and things like that which just is designed to kind of kill you as as quickly as possible uh, but they don't really have that much value unless you unless you're competent to do those they don't offer really that much uh, value apart from massively increasing your risk of getting a an injury <laughs> yeah and it's weird because I find that there's a certain irony about it in the sense of the circuits like what you've just described are actually pretty hard to do well. Like we were talking offline about when we've been back to combat sports with an SNC and and thinking, how the hell am I going to get through all of these repetitions of pushing movements? And you think, well, I've got two options, either A, I don't do the repetitions, or B, I don't do them very well. And you think there's no real you either feel like you're cheating yourself or you feel like, right, I'm going to be absolutely wrecking my shoulders to try and have some sort of badge of honour and say, yep, I completed all the reps that the coach asked me to. Yeah, exactly that. Um, and I guess that's part of, the, part of the game, I guess. You're trying to... If you're training a group of people, it's pretty difficult because you want to try and cater for the whole whole group, I guess. So when you go to things like boxing gyms, they're probably trying to get their fighters or people who are on the verge of being fighters to a decent level of fitness and give them some kind of something to test them a little bit. Um, but if everyone's doing the same thing, then obviously it's going to be, it's going to be pretty challenging for the guys who've only just started and pretty off putting. Yeah. And again, it might've been online. It might've been offline, but I said with my mixed ability kids, there'll always be a level one, two and three. Yeah. Trying to drip feed their understanding of the progressions. I mean, even if they don't know why, for example, um, doing a press up with your hands elevated is easier, whereas with your feet elevated is harder. Even if they don't know that that why those movements would be harder, if they can just still understand that that's harder, that's easier, 
And yes, you still get the problem where the kids all want to go to level three. Um, but even if you can start drip feeding those into your sessions, so you're like, you know what, at least we give people the option. Um, whereas it's easy in those group settings to be like, well, I can't be seen to be doing level one. Like even in yeah. like CrossFit, like I know that CrossFit gets a bad rap, but they do try and scale the workouts. But then I reckon, again, I've never competed in CrossFit, so maybe this isn't the case. But I yeah. still think it's only human nature to think, well, if everyone else is doing level three, I'm going to do level three, whether or not I'm prepared for it. Yeah, yeah. If you're in that group environment with your friends, um, you know, it becomes competitive. So it's a recipe for disaster, unfortunately. It depends. If you've not been, if you've been training a while, then fair enough. But um, if, if it's your first time or you've only been going so long, if you've had a big uh, break, such as, um, you know, if you've been off from COVID and then jumping straight back in and trying to keep up with all your mates, that's probably a recipe for disaster without a doubt. Yeah, I mean, I still remember one of my biggest realisations that I was out of shape was finish boxing and we uh, we used to do a thing called a tart, which is basically you do 10 reps, 10 exercises and however quickly you complete this, so you've got a two-minute round and a one-minute rest break, but if it takes you longer than two minutes, you just get less rest. And in my boxing days, I'd do that comfortably under two minutes, came back after uni, and I was like, right, this is taking three minutes, so I get no rest whatsoever. And I reckon the COVID situation will be similar for a lot of people. And it's almost weird because, oh, you did nothing in lockdown and then expected to be just as fit as what you were prior to lockdown. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we've all heard it. People jumping straight back in with testing on the first first session back which is just craziness really getting your team to go through a fitness test on the first day back is you know some people might have been doing more fitness than ever over over this lockdown over the first lockdown but um you'll get a few people who won't have done anywhere near the same level so to test them to do maximal tests is absolutely you know it's just crazy and if we go back to uh as i said earlier you train general population guys uni guys and uh youth athletes <clears throat> yeah in terms of we'll go into co uh, programming differences uh, in a little while but in terms of educating those clients and considering obviously their age their experience um how do you educate those guys in terms of your principles and how does that look different across those different age ranges yeah, so um, I think a good way, like you just described there, was when they're younger, you need to kind of drip feed. I mean, this is why we have these systems in place. Um, I've got my kind of movement matrix up on the up on the wall at work. Um, so if we're doing a gym session that's focused towards strength, they can all see, you know, level, this is foundation level, level one to five. These are the exercises we're doing this week uh, and this is what level you, you're aiming to get to um, this week or by the end of the by the end of the month or whatever it might be so there's a visual there's a visual guide there so the kids are kind of engaged in the process they can see a clear pathway of of where they're going um, and then we have regular debriefs at the end of sessions and we do things like you know why why were we doing this exercise why doing why is it important to develop strength in this movement blah 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 so that's that's a good way of doing it with younger groups i find um it opens up conversation they can ask questions 
um some questions might you know there's no silly questions really if if their kids have never been in the gym before they've probably got loads of questions i've seen you know probably well strongest man and think that's the way you should do your training it's important to kind of clarify why why we're doing it this way uh, and what benefits you're going to get from it as they get older um especially with uh, your clients you can have proper conversations you know if if you show this level of interest in what you're delivering to them and this passion to them then they're going to be it's going to be infectious to them you know if if you're saying oh cool we're going to do this exercise really good for you know improving your strength of your posterior chain um it's going to be really beneficial for your performance in whatever sport you're playing in um it opens up an avenue to have those conversations. You can go a little bit more in depth and it's more like an educational, ongoing educational chat between you both. So yeah, pretty similar, but I think the kind of underlying thing that we're trying to do is explain why we're doing what we're doing. And I think it's really nice with you saying about having the movement matrix actually visual. I think that's almost nice because I think it's funny as the amount of adults or parents I've interacted with and they're like, oh yeah, but is this going to be sports specific? Little Timmy's like, you know, he's a tennis player, so it needs to be tennis specific. And you think you can talk about, I don't know, how a squat will translate to better tennis performance to a kid and they might get it. But weirdly enough, if you're, if you say our oh, body weight squat is level one and I don't know, a back squat is level five or whatever your progressions yep. are, levels are so powerful for kids you don't even realize as soon as you say something's a higher level and you've got the technique points to say look you're not quite there yet like that is motivating for kids that kids a book i was reading uh, the other day ironically nothing to do with um nothing to do with coaching but it says there needs to be rules there needs to be players you need to know how to win the game and how to lose the game and what's out of bounds like when you give kids that structure, even yeah. if they, they can't necessarily understand, I don't know why a back squat's going to improve spring performance or whatever it is, you give kids that structure and say, look, you're currently here. That's, I would argue, just as motivating for this is going to improve your performance. As S&C coaches, it's so easy to think, I don't know, this kid is seeing me because his mum wants him to get better at tennis and therefore mm. that's the kid's motivation. Like, how many kids honestly have the motivation to play professionally? Like probably, probably not as many as we like to think. Whereas if you're like, right, well, I'm just simply teaching them the principles of how it works in the gym, how to respect the equipment in each other. And then if they're still with it in like five, six years time, then maybe those conversations about tennis specific or whatever are going to be really important. Yeah, definitely. It's like you say, if they've got that, structure there you know kids just crave that uh you know that knowing where they stand basically um so they do they do seem to work really well they do we do put a big emphasis on perfecting the technique and getting them to coach each other i'll often um you know shout across the gym well just next to me say uh you know so and so timmy what do you think of joe's technique with his deadlift how do you reckon he could improve that and he'll he'll think about it. You can see the cogs turning, and then he'll use the experience of what we've chatted about before to kind of coach his friend, which I think is really powerful. Um, and that sets a really good 
standard for the rest of the group and you know it's like oh we can um we can tell each other what good technique looks like and we're not gonna it's not critical do you know what i mean it's not a negative it's we're trying to help each other get better i think that's really really powerful as well yeah and i think that's we're chatting off air um, about specific examples of people just bollocking other people in the gym for their technique and yeah. even though the intention was right in terms of improving their technique improving their performance maybe reducing risk of injury the uh delivery perhaps could have been refined a little bit i think to be able to as we said talk about life skills to be able to criticize someone in a way that makes them want to do it better rather than just switch off and think oh i don't know rob's just having a go at me he's got it in for me or you know whatever is such a powerful skill and something that's going to help you massively just in life when it comes to those difficult conversations. Yeah, I think that's definitely an example of the kind of mistakes I made early on in coaching where you're just saying, no, that's not right, but not really offering, you should do it like this, not offering a, a solution really. Um, when you tell someone they're wrong straight away, they've got their back up against the wall, so they're defensive. So it's it's about communicating, like you say, trying to get them to discover the right way of doing it or a better way of doing it. Yeah, and it's funny, just going back to your example earlier in the podcast of the pogos and the split squat variation, uh, I had a fitness lesson with year seven girls this week and we were working on being able to decelerate. And I thought, I'm not going to spoon feed them the answer. And I just want to see how well my session design allows them to discover it. And basically what I wanted them to try and work out was that you need to lower the center of mass or at least push your hips back in order to decelerate effectively. And even at the end of this session, I was saying, right, everyone close your eyes, step forward if you think it's better to push your hips back or get lower, because some of them were doing it, and <coughs> stay where you are if you think it's better to be stood still and or stood upright. And half of them were still convinced it was to stand upright. And I thought, I'm not going to tell you that's wrong, but I was trying to create different scenarios. So this week I gave the example of where you're mirroring someone and I asked the girl who was demonstrating with me to try it stood up and to try with her hips lower. And she yeah. said it felt easier with her hips lower, but some of them were still saying, oh, I prefer to stand up straight. So next week we're going to, there's, we did the edge of the earth drill song from Brett Clicker where they sprint and they've got a stop on a line. And if they get there first without falling over, they win. But next yeah. week we're going to do that, but then we're going to have a backpedal. And I'm hoping that that will mean that the girls who think it's better to stand up straight will then struggle to coordinate that and struggle to push off. But at no point am I going to say, look, it is better to be in this lower athletic position. Yeah, that's a good way of doing it, actually. Um, I think it was Kelvin Giles' podcast from a long time ago when he was on the Pacey Performance Podcast a while back. Um, he was talking about that, um, how if you had a group of kids uh, teaching them how to throw, instead of giving them the answer, you'd get them all to kind of throw um, like a ball against the wall. Um, or I had a certain distance to cover with this ball. And uh, there'd be like one kid in the class who would be really good, or maybe a couple of kids. And he'd stop the class and say, oh, let's watch let's watch Timmy do this throw again. So he'd throw it again. And he says, oh, what, what do you think he's doing that's making him able to throw that far? And then it opens up a discussion. People are thinking about it a bit more like, oh, yeah, he's doing using an overhand throw as opposed to an underarm throw to get further. He's using his, he's turning his hips as he's doing it. So there's all these little learning elements that you, 
other kids will pick up from watching their friends do it as opposed to just you stood in the middle of the room as a coach saying this is how you do the technique why can't you do it it doesn't work like that when they see the friends doing it they start to think about it a little bit more and think right I need to do this with my hips to get a bit more force push through my hips and time my arm movement at the same time so I can throw it as far as possible and it's little things like that which which make a big difference, I think, to, to your coaching. And it's one of them, again, if I just uh, get on my little PE bandwagon for a little bit, something that I think is a challenge in PE compared to other subjects is uh, being able to assess learning. And from a strength and conditioning perspective, I think how much do I care if they can articulate the points versus if I can see them do it? Obviously, in an ideal world, it would be both. Um, yep. Going back to your throwing example there, Another thing that I've stolen from Kelvin Giles when he talks about overarm throwing is he'll just have kids throw like a beanbag or something against a wall and then he'll say, right, it has to go over this line and then just watch the technique change. And I'll do a yeah. similar thing with a fe- um, we've got a fence at school and the kids just throw it back and forth over the fence. And it's interesting because the kids, some kids get frustrated because it won't go over. And you think, now I could tell them the technique or I could ask some questions or I could just stop and watch the technique try and develop um obviously most of the time they get it sometimes they don't um but even the kids who do manage to figure it out in terms of their technique they still can't articulate it so it's trying to develop that higher level of awareness whilst also making sure they can physically do what you're asking them to do as well yeah and i think um having that patience as a coach is um is something that you learn uh the more more experience you get i think having that patience so easy just to say no no you need to do it like this um because that's that's how I was you know that's how I was coached as a kid learning football or whatever I was playing when I was younger it was very much this is you know autocratic this is how you do this movement if I did it wrong they'd be like no you need to do it like this as opposed to letting me kind of work it out for myself if that makes sense yeah absolutely I mean I had a kid in around us lesson uh yesterday just holding the bat the other way around so he's sort of using the outside of his almost like a backhand in tennis. backhand yeah yeah and uh one of the kids is like he's doing it wrong he's doing it wrong and <coughs> like we were saying earlier I thought I'm not going to tell him that it's quote unquote wrong but I also want to see it was funny because he had it in his right hand and with kids it's so easy with rounders as an example as a teacher you might be like right they've got it in their left hand so where's the ball going to go shift it and you basically spoon feed them but because he had that bat in his right hand even though he was basically backhanding it the kids were still stood on as if they were receiving the ball from a right-hander, not knowing that because he's using his backhand on a right hand, it's actually the equivalent of a left-hander. And yeah. you see that there's a lot of um, evidence in the sort of movement literature that if you use too many closed drills or you spoon-feed kids too much, when the performance problem changes ever so slightly, they're just, you know, looking to the coach for answers or they're clueless. And eventually some of the kids got it and I was like this technique isn't wrong it's just different but what are you going to do to adapt to that and it's having the patience to try and get kids to come to a better understanding with these deeper level questions is again it's something I particularly enjoy yeah yeah that's good and uh just moving on a little bit now so we talked about differences between uh how you would educate clients we just talk about uh conditioning for youth athletes because i've read a few of your uh, blogs which i would recommend people checking out um what are some of the main considerations when it comes to 
or if indeed you decide to do conditioning work with uh, young athletes? Yeah, um, so I kind of wrote that article originally about fitness for kids because um, when you speak to coaches and parents and you ask them, what would you like Timmy to improve on? They normally say something along the lines of, he needs to get fitter <clears throat> and he needs to get stronger core or something like that, something something pretty vague. So I kind of dug into it a little bit with that article. Um, and I think, you know, generally speaking, most kids, the amount of practice that they get, um, you know, they're, they're exposed to multiple training sessions in the week. They've got competition, they've got PE. I can think of kids who do athletics, football, netball, all in the same week. You've got to bear in mind they've got practice to do for that competition, school competition, PE as well, and then playing with a friend. So, you know, that in itself is enough kind of fitness for me, but in my, in my mind, especially in those earlier years. <clears throat> so we've got to be really careful not to be part of the problem because you don't just want to add unnecessary volume of work and necessary fitness um, just for the sake of it and you could potentially you know in increase their risk of getting an overuse injury um, generally speaking as an SNC coach you look at what buckets you want to fill the most and the fitness one's probably pretty full and you want to more focus on the strength side the ability to absorb force um, and maybe be more efficient with running or changing direction and things like that so for me that's normally the that is usually the priority. I think subjectively speaking, you're like you probably spot as a coach or an athlete as like a severe deficit in their, in their conditioning. Um, if, they're, if they're struggling to get through a game or a, or a session, then you know that it needs to be addressed, which is probably, probably not uncommon after a COVID lockdown. There's kids that have been sat at home all day um, on the computer. That's probably not all that uncommon at the moment. Um, it does, it does change in terms of what you should be really doing with kids. Um, I mean, before, early on, you want to be using things that are like fun-based games, you know, tag games. It needs to be kind of self-limited um, so they can choose how long and how intense uh, the session the session might actually be or the bouts of exercise might actually be. Um, we don't want to kind of burn them out too soon. Um, so like a good example of that, let me just have a look at my notes here. Yeah. So we reckon things like um, tag games, um, plenty of cross training. So using kind of general movements that are not specific to a particular sport. Uh, so they're getting the really broad range of movements in there. Uh, the volume, the volume early on is going to be pretty low and the intensity uh, again, will probably be lower than what you'd expect as as the kids get older, uh, and that would obviously flip as as they go towards adulthood. You would see the structure uh, increase, doing doing more structured type conditioning sessions, something that I might give a senior senior athlete, um, and the intensity and volume can obviously increase as well with that. And in terms of you said there about the games being self limiting, how do you manage that? logistically so for example if i've got uh, a class of 30 kids pe whatever um some of them who have more proficient movement skills who also conveniently tend to be the better conditioned ones 
how do you manage that logistically in terms of when they decide enough is enough, considering that a low ability pupil might decide enough is enough earlier than a higher ability pupil? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I actually look, I actually read, I'm just trying try and find these notes on them. Um, I read a journal, um, it was linked to PE, and uh, it was talking about grouping people based on their ability level. Yeah. Um, which which has been found to be, you know, have positive effects. Uh, so that that could be one way of doing it. If you had a large group, for example, I know this is one of your um, questions. Um, let me just get it up here. So yeah, kind of ability grouping. If if you kind of group the lower lower skilled groups together, they had um, an improve an improvement in what they call moderate vigorous physical activity in that session. So they're probably actually getting a better training effect from working alongside kids of a similar skill level. And it's the same for the higher end groups as well. The tests that they were doing showed that the higher skilled group kids, if they were uh, paired with um, similar ability kids, again, they got superior results in terms of their, their fitness levels and their skill levels. Uh, so that's that's a good way of doing it. Self-regulating the intensity of the games, um, if you've got a tag game, for example, you know, you can tell them beforehand, you know, if you need to take a, get involved in the game, but if you need to take a breather in between, feel free to do so. Um, in its nature though, you know, tag is, is kind of stop start. You can self-regulate if you do, if you want to be away from the crowd, you just obviously stay to one side. So yeah. it kind of works pretty well. Yeah. And that's something that I'm trying to develop my ability to construct games and a sense of, for example, it's very easy to have kids uh, just standing as far back in the room as the room allowed. Um, <clears throat> and you think, well, I've not technically told them not to do that. So I need to change the rules slightly. Something in terms of your grouping, I completely agree. Um, so a few things that I've, a few things that I've been doing to uh, a fitness session the other week, mixed ability. So I put them in groups of movement skills slash fitness for want of a better word. And with the lower ability group, because they're going to struggle to catch people, I do it where it's so we do a game of rocket tag where the original concept stolen from Shane Fitzgibbon is if you tag someone, they sit in a squat and then to get free, they get someone taps them on the head, they blast up like a rocket. Um, but with the uh, low ability group, when they tap someone, if they have if they've been in a squat for more than five seconds without being freed, they become a tagger as well. Um, right. Equally, for example, if we're doing something like football and I don't know, we're going to do a, a last person standing drill where we've got four teams, uh, three of the teams have a ball. One of the team is the sort of defenders. I will always make the lower ability kids be the defenders. So they experience some success by booting the ball away. Whereas in an ideal world in football, you want to regain possession. But the lower ability kids are more likely to win, are more likely to keep the ball away. Whereas if the high ability kids were the defenders, the balls would be you know, repossessed in about five seconds and it, well, one, it wouldn't flow very well. And two, it would be very demoralizing for a kid who's never kicked a ball to within about three seconds of having the ball to then lose the ball. But yeah, totally agree on uh, groupings, uh, slight rule tweaks of where my head's sort of going with PE is tweaking the rules. So like in that example, the kids who are in the lower ability group, they didn't realize that I'd changed the rules for them to make it easier and equally, the high ability in the higher ability groups, they don't realise that 
they've got to catch everyone because I deliberately want to make it harder for them. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of doing it, without a doubt. It, it works well, I think, just keeping it simple like that. When you're working with large groups, uh, just keeping it super simple is, is absolutely key. You know, it's got to make sense to the kids that you're coaching as well. So that sounds like a really good example there. And in terms of, uh, again, we were talking off air about conditioning for adults <coughs> and how that it's anyone could design a session that's going to leave someone feeling like they've had a good workout. Um, but what are the guiding principles of making sure that, yes, they, as we were saying earlier, they feel like they've had a hard session, which is ultimately what they think that they need or what they want but you're still sticking to your principles of, for example, doing no harm and um, making sure that the exercise choices are doing no harm, but still making them feel like they've had a hard session. Yeah. So we, uh, we use this um, work capacity circuit a lot, <clears throat> which I probably stole from an, another coach, but um, I think it, I think it might be Mike Boyle uses them dumbbell complexes anyway, but anyway, we use these, work capacity circuits, I call them, at uh, certain times of the year uh, with teams uh, just to build a bit of work capacity, obviously. But also you can use them with clients who are looking to strip a bit of body fat and they want a bit of a bit of a workout, if you like. Um, the emphasis, we use pretty lightweight, so we recommend something between 8 kilograms, a pair of 8 kilograms to 12 kilograms, something around about that. <clears throat> and they're required to do around about six exercises paired together back to back and kind of link them as smoothly as possible. So, for example, the one that I use quite a bit is um, we'll do thrusters with dumbbells. So you've got to get into a nice deep squat position. Always a big focus on technique. And that makes it a hell of a lot harder if you really put the focus on sit you'll tell them let's make this as smooth as possible all the movements have to blend into one another so you'll go from thrusters we'll do six reps straight into rdl so literally as you've pressed overhead you're going to be bringing the weights down and then hinging at the hip so straight into an rdl movement rdls to high pull so again another transition where it's going slightly more explosive and then straight into something like a lateral lunge so Again, you try to link these movements together so they're going, they're getting into a rhythm. Um, and you can imagine all these back to back, and it's really quite taxing to do that with good technique. Um, and because the reps are so short, we're not doing twenty reps of each one where you, you know, you're absolutely spent after the first set. You're doing just six reps, which is pretty manageable, really, with yeah. a relatively light weight. And you do them back to back, and it is you know, you do feel pretty, pretty uh, exhausted after it because you, there's so much focus on trying to blend the movements together, trying to get a bit of flow between the movements and trying to keep the technique on point. It's, it's a good way. That's just an example of what we use quite a lot with, with adult clients. Yeah, I know. I like that a lot. And it, to testify to its effectiveness myself, um, when gyms were still open here in the UK, um, <clears throat> when I first got back in the gym, jumped on again, and you can dispute the validity or reliability of these types of machines all you want, but uh, I jumped on the machine at um, the gym that I train at, which spits out your metabolic age, and having not really, tr or having trained randomly for the five months of the first lockdown, um, <clears throat> it spat my metabolic age out as 34, and... <laughs> 
I'm 27 at the moment. And even at the time, I was thinking, oh, well, physically, I still look better than most people. I'm not overweight, or at least I like to think I'm not. And it said 34. And I thought, it's funny, when the machines tell you something you don't like, you're like, yeah, they're not accurate. They're, you know, you can't believe that. <laughs> and uh, but at the same time, I was still thinking, 34, like, you've got to be having a laugh. Um, but my first coming back into training, my warm up was uh, barbell complex, similar to what you've just described there. Yeah. And it would just start with three sets of six and then the next session, three sets of seven, next session, three sets of eight. And then when you get to three sets of 10, the next session is three sets of six, but you add two and a half kilos. Anyway, yeah. eight weeks later of doing these, jump back on the scales uh, or the uh, machine and it said metabolic age 22. And yeah. all of a sudden I'm like, wow, these things are really accurate. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I bet you did. <laughs> but you don't have to be, there's this conception that you have to do so much work to improve cardiovascular health. Um, but what I like there is obviously you've improved your cardiovascular health, but also, you know, RDLs, you're getting some kind of hamstring flexibility, even with a deep squat and a thruster, hip mobility, high pull, some kind of explosive work, lateral lunge, some kind of adductor flexibility. So one of my main knock, my, one of my main critiques of people's circuits is I'm like, well, you're going to do the exercises in a circuit format anyway. So rather than doing, for example, jumps, which people aren't conditioned for, or other just randomized exercises think right yes i want the cardiovascular benefit but what other benefits can i get in without reducing the overall quality yeah i like those uh, barbell complexes as well they work really well in a in a warm-up um that works really well with with athletes in general because you you can work on you can microdose if you like a bit of work capacity before every single session that you see them so if you're pretty limited, uh, which is often the case with some of the guys that I work with, if you're only seeing them once a week um, or twice a week, rather, um, adding that little bit of work capacity in the warm-up, <clears throat> doing back-to-back barbell complexes is a really good way of, of developing that uh, or keeping it ticking over a little bit, at least. Um, but also you can work on a few skills. You know, if, you, if you're trying to get them to work towards doing the Olympic lifts, you can add in some um, barbell complexes that are more related to that, like overhead squats, you know, drop um, drop snatches, uh, sorry, snatch balance, um, things like that. You can be really creative, as creative as you as you want, really, as a coach. Yeah, and going back to our other point of trying not to um, overfill the bucket, or equally trying not to just <clears throat> chuck a million and one exercises um, into the program. There's no reason why something like a snatch balance. So, for example, for those not familiar with uh, Olympic lifting, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I always get snatch balance and drop snatch slightly mixed up, but snatch balance, bar across the back, and then just try and drop under, no press. Yeah, I think you pro- probably overestimate my knowledge of, of weightlifting nah, there, mate. That's fine. <laughs> that's fine. But anyway, that could easily be, basically, it's like ex- an explosive drop under the bar and then putting yeah. the brakes on. There's no reason why that can't be used to develop a the uh, de- a, a kind of deceleration pan and just getting the athletes used to slamming the brakes on at speed and yep. even though it's just a warm-up movement it does get the brain and body switched on to apply force and to put the brakes on rapidly so yeah as, as we were saying earlier that could be your sort of to a certain extent that could be your stiffness work probably more for the quads than for the ankles but we're still working in similar fields so 
it's very easy to think, oh, these work on barbell complexes are great. Put those in there. Oh, Rob uses dumbbells instead of barbells. Let's put those in there. Oh, we also need to chuck in stiffness landings, chuck those in there. And before you know it, yeah. you've just become completely overwhelmed. Yeah, it's having it's having that um, structure um, of knowing that everything needs to have its place. Uh, you can't just randomly chuck stuff in there for the sake of it, which is probably what most S&C coaches do early on in the career. I mean, I've done that. It's like you want to chuck everything in, um, try and make sure you cover every single base in every single session, but it's not it's not realistic, really. It just doesn't work. Uh, it just kind of muddies the water a little bit. Yeah. But, um, okay. I was just going to say, I mean, I found early on uh, Mike Boyle's um, book, I can't remember it's called, I think it's Functional Training yes. for Sports. Yeah. <clears throat> I found that really useful for just learning how a, how a program should be structured, really, because he really simplified it. Um, I think at the time when I read it, he had things like movement patterns on particular days. So he might have a, he doesn't like front squats, but I'll use front squats as a knee dominant example so like a knee dominant exercise on on day one paired with like a pulling exercise and then some complementary exercises after that some single leg work and then day two which might be a couple of days afterwards uh would be would be a hip dominant exercise so you're able to train similar areas um but not the same if that makes sense so obviously you'd be fresh for a hip dominant movement um but you've you still trained the lower body, if that makes sense. Yeah, and uh, again, I'm pretty sure it's I'm pretty sure it's uh, Mike Boyle who, again, it might be Mike Boyle, it might be someone else, but it simplifies it even further because I think it's uh, it's something I've written about a fair bit. Is when people just use the word "art." Oh, that's a fundamental. That's a basic. And it's like you could easily say it's squat, hinge, push, pull. You could easily say it's knee dominant, hip dominant. Um, you could easily say that hits legs, upper body, whatever. And I think it's Mike Boyle who's just like, do something for your legs, do a push, do a pull, do a core exercise. And we love to overcomplicate things, but I like to think of what's the least amount of work we could get away with. But, but equally, you could do exactly what you said with Mike Boyle's example, and the complex might be enough to tick over those other patterns or work on the mobility or the skill of those other pans whilst not necessarily tapping into recovery too much. Yeah, I think they work really well uh, when they've got a good level of um, skill already, if that makes sense. I've tried it before in the past, just experimenting with people who've not probably had enough experience uh, and it doesn't look, if it doesn't look pretty, then obviously I'd take it out. Um, if the technique's not on point, um you obviously need to address that first before you start adding volume to it yeah and uh on that subject something that i used extensively with <clears throat> used to work in a, a girls school the warm-up would just be if anyone's checked out the gmb fitnesses frogger bear monkey which is basically the frog is just a moving squat the bear is a moving uh their bear crawl is where you start off in almost a downward dog position and then it's opposite arm opposite leg and that's a hinge pattern it's shoulder stability it's single arm straight arm strength um and the monkey is basically like a lateral frogger but it's more works the adductors more works one side of the body more but you can easily change rather than sets and reps so as we said if you're using a barbell complex and it looks ugly it's 
obviously you don't want ugly repetitions, but equally you think ugly repetitions under load, we can't have that. Whereas with the frog, a bear and monkey, you can <clears throat> get in a swap pattern, a hinge pattern, some upper body work, and then you can just say, right, let's try it backwards. Let's try it as slow as we can, as loud as we can, as high as we can. And you're still building flexibility, mobility, and a bit of body weight strength. And I'd always use that as my precursor to then going into, for example, my dumbbell complexes, my barbell complexes, because it's easy, as we were saying, as you were saying earlier, there's nothing that's going to get someone's back up the wall more than saying you're wrong. But equally, you can't give someone a loaded barbell and see, I don't know, knees smashing together or backs rounded. So you, you know, you've got nothing left to do but to say, right, we need to change this up. Um, but I like to use those body weight prep work as well as making same but different variations of those exercises and then be like, right, we've done that for, I don't know, six weeks, two months, whatever it is. Right now, we I know you can squat well because I've seen you do several repetitions, even if you didn't realise that was what we were working to with those movements. Yeah, definitely. Uh, like you say, that warm-up period is so valuable, isn't it, as a, as a coach to see kind of test your athletes a little bit and see what they can what they can do, what they can't do. Uh, it's pretty, it becomes pretty obvious if someone's got a, a real movement uh, deficiency in the warm-up. You're trying to get them to do things like crawls uh, and they're struggling to maintain that hip position um, or they're struggling to coordinate, you know, they're going to struggle with any kind of running mechanics that you try and throw at them. So it's it's a really good starting point to see where your athletes are at yeah and it's it's kind of the way like you said using the warm-up there kind of gives you an indication of overall <clears> athleticism <throat> but also longer term athleticism in the sense of if you haven't got the coordination to for example move opposite hand and opposite leg in a crawling pattern why am i going to bother with sprint mechanics that are going to be trying to do that speed that is just going to frustrate you even more and might lead to me saying you're wrong <laughs> yeah yeah exactly that yeah just a bit of smart smart coaching there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And in terms of uh, diving in just uh, a little bit further into your stuff that you had written on conditioning for kids, and yep. in terms of them not necessarily being as anaerobically adapted as adults, do you just want to chat about that for a couple of minutes? Yeah, so um, when they're kind of pre-puberty stage, um, well, let me just find my notes on this. Uh, so... Kids are generally pretty aerobic in nature. So um, if you look at the kind of makeup of their muscle, there's, there's predominantly type 1 muscle fibres, which would suggest they're pretty aerobic in nature. Um, they've got a similar <clears throat> um, piece, uh, phosphocreatine and ATP system as adults. So they're able to do things like explosive movements, um, things like um, sprints for a very short period of time off throws and things like that that's what they that's what it would suggest but the glycolytic system which is slightly longer anaerobic uh, system there for slightly longer distances so if i was going to use an example it might be something like a 400 meter run might be predominantly using your glycolytic system that's not as well developed in these pre-pubertal kids um so with that knowledge it was proved as a kind of thought that this would limit their capacity for repeated sprint work where using uh, the glycolytic system quite a lot. Um, But there's been quite a few studies to say 
that potentially that might not be that might not be the case and you know kids can actually whether or not they should do is a different matter but they can get involved and do repeated sprint work there's actually a study <clears throat> it was done on nine to eleven year olds uh nine to eleven year olds swimmers of both both genders and half of them did kind of regular high volume steady state training um of hours and hours of swimming uh, and then the other half did high intensity interval training or this is what they called it um and the high intensity interval training group had uh, on average a three and a half times higher blood lactate concentrations uh, immediately after the training sessions which would you know suggest that they're working in that anaerobic zone um and they both at the end of this uh, training block they both had comparable improvements in performance and i think the point of that study was they could say well we're investing less time in training they're doing less volume, but we're getting the similar or same results, which is obviously, you know, you'd think that would be beneficial um, for for any athlete, really. Um, but yeah, as I say, kids are generally more aerobic in nature when they're when they're kind of pre-puberty age, uh, and that obviously changes as they go through puberty and towards towards adulthood. I don't suppose, and don't worry if you haven't, because I'll check the paper out uh, later. But I don't suppose you happen to have the actual blood lactate values themselves from that study by any chance? I don't. I just have those notes on it. I think, um, no, I'd be guessing, to be honest, mate. No, I, I can fine. send you them afterwards. I'll send yeah. you the article afterwards if you want. Yeah, no, I'd be intrigued. The only, the only reason I say <laughs> that is because um, I remember when I was at um, GB Boxing and I remember prior to that, my dissertation, which involved taking blood lactate in boxes and the word lactate has just become almost this devil word like you need to avoid it at all costs but actually yeah. somebody who can produce high levels of lactate is very very explosive and it is actually indicative of how explosive they are um yeah the only reason i asked about the blood lactate values is because i'd just be intrigued one to compare them to uh the values i found in my own study which again correlated highly between because i knew the boxes all the yeah. boxes who were highly explosive scored had had higher lactate values now your ability to then reduce the lactate is probably a sign of a good aerobic system um but in listening to you speak there a couple of things i've jotted down is just the whether the mechanism by which kids and adults respond to the high intensity interval training might be different and also in terms of the repeated sprints whether actually maybe depending on distance maybe that's using the atp system and the aerobic system and not to say it bypasses the glycolytic system but if you were doing something like i don't know 25 meter sprint walking recovery 25 meter sprint you probably never really touch upon the glycolytic system anyway and if kids if we know kids are aerobic and can still do the explosive stuff, maybe they might not do it as high intensity, but they can still do it. Then maybe the, their improvements are through different mechanisms than adults. That's just me sort of shooting yeah. the hip as it were. Yeah. I think um, the working intensity, I've just got it jotted down from that particular study. Uh, they were working at the high intensity group. were working at 92% of their best time over a given distance. Um, so that might tell you something about in terms of what intensity they were working at, but 
whether that's the same relative intensity as, as an adult, like you're saying, whether they're able to actually hit those same levels is, is a different matter. Yeah, and to add further weight to that, um, for me, a prime example of how aerobic uh, kids actually are in a lesson I had a couple of weeks ago, they I had the kids do a, a five-minute dis, five max distance test. And it's funny because kids have no concept of pacing. Like, at all. Yeah. <laughs> and a few of them sprinted the first two. Like I had a cone mark, 25-meter distance. And a f- couple of kids sprinted the first two 25 meters. And it's like, kids don't understand, no matter how much you tell them, that it's physiologically impossible to sprint for five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> we recorded the number of times they did that. The reason why we were doing that is because I then put them in teams at the end of the lesson. And they basically did it where one kid will go to the cone and back, then we'll tag the next kid will go to the cone and back. And then to see how many, uh, how many, how much distance they accumulated in a team versus how much distance they accumulated as individuals. Now, if I did a five minute max distance test, there's no way I'd be doing a team event half an hour later. Um, but the kids are absolutely fine. But so when you said, for example, working at 92% max intensity, as you said, the key fact there is that their 92% or their max intensity, the ceiling wasn't very high to begin with. Um, yeah. So 92% of something that's not very impressive is still not very impressive. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I yeah, I probably lean towards that same same kind of um, finding there. That makes sense. In um, so I know we were both at the Charter Champion Conference in 2019, um, and a paper that I've uh, a paper that particularly resonated with me was uh, a Rital a, a Rital et al paper where basically they had the kids perform. I'm try, uh, trying to get this right off the top of my head, but they had the kids perform a I think it was a 10 second sprint on the minute, every minute. And basically the power output from the kids didn't change from sprint one to sprint 10, even though they only had what would seem a comparatively little recovery. Whereas adults, I'm assuming there's some kind of fiber type composition change as you go through puberty. Cause you know, otherwise we wouldn't have the Usain Bolts of this world if their type one fibers didn't somehow change to type two. Yeah. Um, but the adults intensity dropped off massively and their absolute intensity obviously came down massively whereas kids absolute intensity stayed the same and basically said that they didn't need as much time to recover and yeah. probably because the output was never as high in the first place yeah that's that's interesting because um again just from the, some of the studies i was looking at some of the recommendations are that the rest periods are shorter for these kids because they're they're able to recover a lot quicker so pre-puberty obviously they're able to recover between these bouts and they actually recommend 10 seconds as a as a good guide for um their rest period or building up towards that between Um, high intensity bouts 10 seconds wow that's yeah that's hilarious i mean even even when I was talking about those rocket tag variations, I'd find the kids would be absolutely breathing out their ass. And I'd just speak to them for enough time to say, right, we're going to swap this team for this team. These are the rules we're going to play for this game. And then they'd be fine. And I'd yeah. be like, if I was struggling that much, 10 seconds would not be anywhere near as much time. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's an interesting topic. I think it could, again, could go down a whole 
rabbit hole there. Uh, I think it's probably needs some more research in that area. Yeah, but I do also think it's, as you said, important to note that there are going to be programming implications, whether it's the type of activities we do and we're using games uh, versus more structured work, um, whether it's we're disguising in different movement patterns with the adults with the complexes, um, and what our consideration of how much rest period is actually needed um, is also important to consider. We can't just apply the same, oh, these adults do these conditioning workouts, so therefore the kids need to do them as well. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably a mistake a lot of coaches have probably made in the past, just trying to treat them like mini adults and um, you know give them the same kind of tempo runs or uh, whatever you want to call it, shuttle runs and things like that to kids. Um, when really we should be looking at it um, a bit more intelligently. And, um, you know, we don't want to give them the hardest stuff first. Um, just because they can doesn't mean they should be doing it. Um, we need to kind of think long-term and how we can develop, and develop them for, for years to come. And as we've said before, um, the biggest bang for the buck in terms of development for kids is generally developing the, the strength um their speed and their <clears throat> their movement um, efficiency, which I think you're probably going to get a lot more benefit from. Yeah, and it's one of those where I think to myself, good youth coaches, it's almost the variations are so subtle that a parent would watch it and be like, wow, little Timmy's really working hard here. And you think, well, yeah, he's working hard, but it's in a productive way. And we're still sneaking in some movement patterns. That's, again, why I like games like Rocket Tag or even... Uh, a game that I do is Bulldog with a deceleration zone. So the kids have to show me a clear stop and maybe that counts as that little bit of rest period they need. Um, but that for me is the art and science of coaching kids where you've got the art of it, where the kids are still working hard, parents still see they're working hard, but we're still developing that strength, that movement efficiency, the ability to absorb force. That's for me is where the money lies. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I mean, it's the same with, older adults as well you know when you're training senior athletes they quite often early on they might want to do something that's sport specific um so you've got to almost kind of give them something they need but also give them something they that's that's nice to do for them as well if that makes sense absolutely yeah you need to find that sweet spot between the need to do and the want to do yeah 100 percent and just, just in wrapping up, if you could have one key take home for listeners of this podcast, whether it's uh, their coaches, parents, um, or indeed uh, maybe youth athletes themselves, what would that be? Uh, I think for S&C coaches, I'll probably direct this up, um, is early on in your, in your career, you've just got to get stuck in and, and take that uh, I think I've used this term for imperfect action. So I, for one, when I started out, I was thinking oh, I need to do X, Y, and Z. I need to work with uh, individual athletes. I need to work with team athletes from this spot and that spot. And then it all becomes paralysis by overanalysis. Um, the key key thing is to just get stuck in, uh, put yourself out there. Don't be afraid of making any making mistakes with everyone every coach has to go through that process of of trying and, and failing and going through that process again and again uh, and i think that that makes you a lot better um at your job than than kind of being spoon-fed the answers if that makes sense 
Absolutely. This, that's, as you said, the same is true for adults as, as kids. You spoon feed the answers as soon as, as soon as the, uh, performance problem changes, then, you know, you've, you're out of the way. Um, yeah. And if you could spend time with one coach and their athletes, who would it be and why? Yeah. Um, I would say Eric Cressy. I've been a big fan of his for a while. Um, I love his level of knowledge uh, of the shoulder, uh, which is absolutely insane. Um, I'd love to see him work with his athletes and kind of communicate that really detailed information into into language that they understand. Yeah, as we said, that's that's where the money is, having that high-level technical knowledge, but communicating it with <coughs> someone who doesn't necessarily possess that. And if you had one recommended resource, whether it's a book, a podcast, doesn't necessarily have to be S&C related. Yeah, uh, something that I'm looking at at the moment uh, is work by John Goodman. Um, his website is called www.theptdc.com. And that's all to do with sales and marketing and the business side of, of fitness, the fitness industry and finding that really, really useful. Perfect. And uh, final question, if you just sort of stay on the line and we'll wrap up afterwards, uh, where and how can people best reach out to you? Uh, so pretty active on Instagram. Uh, that's at GoPerformanceUK. Uh, and my website with my blog posts on is www.go-performance.co.uk. Perfect. I'll make sure both of those are linked in the show notes. Um, thank you Perfect. very much for your time today, Rob. Yeah, cheers, mate. It's been a pleasure. My, my pleasure. My pleasure to have you on. Thank you for listening to episode number 33 of the Platform to Perform podcast with myself, as always, Todd Davidson and today's guest, Rob Milner. If you've enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you could share it with coaches, parents and anyone else looking to perform at their highest level. And if you want to go one better, you can support the podcast by heading over to www.patreon.com forward slash Todd Davidson P2P coaching. In exchange for supporting the podcast, you'll receive access to all the programs that I've released and put on there, including Bodyweight Size, which is a scaled calisthenics program that allows you to put on muscle mass using bodyweight-only exercises, uh, a seven-week corona conditioning block to see you through lockdown, and all of the videos that I've released uh, as part of Calisthenics Kids, which aims to improve strength, movement skill, and confidence in children. Thank you very much for the support and I'll catch you again in the next episode.